You know, the, the 1960s was a tumultuous time in the history of our nation. Fights were raging between the free spirits and the authority structures of the day. There were strong disagreements about war and sexual morality. There were arguments over civil rights and even absolute truth. In the early 70s, we saw the hot-button issues starting to calm down for a season. And the cultural uproar of the 60s seemed to be in the rearview mirror. And yet Christian apologist and philosopher... Francis Schaeffer, he did not see peace on the horizon for believers. Instead, he anticipated an ever-increasing anti-Christian shift taking place in the global West. And he would be proven right. Therefore, with looming challenges that will be facing Christians in the days to come, he wrote a book that's entitled, How Should We Then Live? And the whole thrust of the book is trying to answer the question for believers is how do we live in light of a world that is against the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, this is the same question that Simon Peter is seeking to answer in his letter. With first century Rome becoming increasingly hostile to those who follow Jesus, Peter is answering the question, how should we then live? Let's look at it together. Grab your Bibles in 1 Peter chapter 3. Turn there with me. It, we're going through this series, Imperishable. And what we're going to see in this section that we're going to be looking over for the weeks to come is there is an imperishable righteousness. An imperishable righteousness that we have in Christ. We just sang the song that we are holy. We are blameless. We are righteous all because of the work of Jesus at the cross. Now for those who are righteous, those who have Christ, we are now growing in our righteousness. We are in the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Well, Simon Peter is addressing this imperishable righteousness that we have in Christ in his letter. Now, this is the same Simon Peter who walked on water with Jesus. This is the same Simon Peter who, in Acts chapter 9, raised Dorcas from the dead. And this is a fisherman turned Bible teacher. And Peter is writing to believers in Asia Minor who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. And so with persecution increasing, he gives the first section of his letter to believers who are in Christ. He's reminding them of their identity. You are indeed elect exiles. You have been given a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have an imperishable reward that is coming for those who are faithful. Then in section 2, Simon Peter gives the practical application of the gospel. In the life of the believer, he says, you are aliens and exiles... Therefore, as those who are living in a foreign land, as those who are not home yet, this is how you are to live. Abstain from the sinful desires of the flesh and conduct yourselves honorably. Submit to the governing authorities over your life and make sure you are those who are submitting and honoring your earthly masters in the workplace. Husbands and wives in your marriage have the gospel as your model for how you are to glorify Christ in your marriage. 
Now in the next section, Peter lays out for us the righteousness that we as believers possess in Christ. That we have indeed been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Now before we move forward, it's important that we understand who we are in light of the world around us. As persecution is increasing around the world, we as believers in the United States don't face the type of persecution that others face. In fact, here are the challenge from a Nigerian pastor. And I read this quote this week. He says, don't compromise here in the West on the faith we're dying for in Africa. It's a strong word. It's a good word. As persecution is increasing, do not neglect this salvation. Do not compromise and do not go backwards. In fact, we've got a map I want to show you of what, what it looks like around the world. Of These are countries where it is very difficult to follow Jesus. The red is the most severe extreme persecution. The orange is moderate. The yellow is a high level of, of, of persecution. There's a sense in which... Believers in Jesus are suffering for the sake of the gospel, many of them losing their lives. And so for us, it might be a comment someone makes about us on Facebook, okay? So let's make sure we're, we're comparing what persecution looks like. And yet at the same time, as those who are followers of Jesus, we are called to endure persecution. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, when that persecution comes, how should we live? Peter tells us here in chapter three. I want you to see first, when persecution comes, we are to, number one, display the attitude of Christ. Look at verse eight. Peter writes, finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble. Here in verse 8, Peter lays out five attitudes that believers display in their relationships with one another. Now, it's vital, y'all, that we grab hold of this truth is that these are not five things in order to be saved. We don't do these things to go to heaven. This is not pull up the bootstraps on your salvation. These are not five things that you must do for God to love you. That's not the case here. Rather, these are characteristics of someone who is following Jesus. As believers, as those who belong to Christ, we are pursuing the righteousness of Christ. I love how D.A. Carson calls it. He calls it grace-driven effort. He says, people do not drift towards holiness apart from grace-driven efforts. I love that phrase. People do not gravitate toward godliness. Paul says in Philippians 2, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's us. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. That's God's work. So God is the one who gives us the desire and he gives us the ability to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So as we look at these five characteristics in verse 8, don't hear it as, okay, these are five things I have to do for God to love me or to earn his favor. No, 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 no. In the gospel, you are already loved. In the gospel, you're already favored. In the gospel, your salvation is secure. 
But now that you have Christ, the Holy Spirit, who's been implanted within you, he now empowers you to pursue after godliness. You are to go after these five attitudes of the heart. And as we are pursuing Jesus, this is the godliness that God himself is cultivating within the hearts and lives of his people. The Bible here, y'all, we got to be clear about this, is that if you belong to Jesus, you are growing to become more like Jesus. If someone claims to know Jesus and they don't change, they don't know Jesus. The Bible is so clear about this. I think the challenge of living in the South of this cultural Christianity is that you can claim to know Jesus, but your life doesn't have to change. But if you belong to Jesus, you want to change. You want to become like Christ. The Spirit has put the desire within you to pursue after Jesus. And when you pursue Jesus, he begins to cultivate godliness inside of you. And so as we follow Jesus, the Spirit is cultivating the character of Christ. Day by day, we become more like Jesus. I remember when I was in college after church, every Sunday, me and a bunch of my buddies would go over to the home of a senior adult couple, and they would make us just a great spread of food, and man, that's the love language of college students, just feed them, okay? And we would just go and sit down, and I remember this, this senior adult man, he'd put his elbows on the table and cross his fingers like this, and he would just speak wisdom, he lived a godly life. And I remember one Sunday, I was just watching him, and I was like, oh my goodness, I am nothing like Jesus. I want to become like this guy who just loves Jesus and just speaks wisdom. And I thought, golly, I have so far to go. And by the way, can I say to you, if you're a senior adult, if you're upper, in your upper ages, open up your kitchen Invite young families to come and destroy your living room and feed them, but speak words of life into them. Model a godly marriage. Speak words of life. Take them out to eat. Build relationships with people of a different demographic than you. We're going to see why here in just a minute. But you see, as we're following Jesus, there should be growth in the gospel, just as that Godly senior saint just sat there with his arms upon the table and I just saw godliness oozing out of his heart and out of his life. There should be a longing within the hearts of believers to want to become more like Jesus. So that being the case, Peter says, verse eight, finally. Okay, to sum all of this up, this is for everybody. This is for all y'all from lower Alabama. These are five marks of what your attitude should look like. Notice these five. Number one, be like-minded. Some translations use the word harmonious. This points to a unity amongst believers. You see, the church is the kingdom outpost that displays unity in our diversity. And though we have many, many differences, we are unified. We are together for the gospel. This is what Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. He prayed, Father, I pray that my followers would be one. Can you think of another organization more diverse than the global church? People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, 
various languages, various skin colors, various backgrounds and perspectives, young and old, rich and poor, fat and skinny, from here and from there, from every corner of the globe, we are one in Christ. And yet simultaneously within our local churches, we are to be like-minded. And may I say to you as your pastor, y'all, this is one of our strengths as a church. Westwood is together. We're unified. One of God's good gifts to us is that in our midst, there is joy and there is love and there is unity. And y'all, there is nothing better than that. Unity brings peace because we're together for what really matters. It is so sweet and good when we are together. I'm not sure if your kids argue or ever fight, but mine do. And when they do, Sometimes my wife will say, boys, what does Psalm 133 verse 1 say? They roll their eyes. They grumble. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. But that's exactly right. It is good when there is unity. When we are like-minded. When you have people from various backgrounds and perspectives and skin colors, we're together for the gospel. Nothing in this world makes sense. You look at us and we're just a motley crew from different perspectives and walks of life, and yet we can come and we can lock arms together. What apart from the grace of Jesus can bring Roll Tide and War Eagle together? You guys are crazy by the way. But that's what the grace of Jesus does. He makes us like-minded. He makes us one. We are together for the gospel. And when you look at the church, there's various opinions. There's lots of gifts, different political perspectives. There's, There's various Sporting allegiances, personalities, but we're one in spirit and in purpose. It's the gospel that holds us together. But number two, it says be sympathetic. This means to suffer with someone. It's a practical word. It means drawing near to those who are hurting. You don't just feel bad for someone who's going through a trial. You actually do something about it. You see, as first century believers, as they were suffering for the gospel, as they're going through difficulty, as their property was being confiscated, as they were losing their jobs, as they were being threatened and mistreated, and the fiery trial, as Peter says, is increasing, the church needed each other. That's all they had. For many of them, they were losing all of their earthly possessions. What else are we going to do? We've got each other. There was, there was sympathetic towards one another. They were together. They helped one another. Now, for most of us in this room, we don't like being helped. Our pride sometimes gets in the way of allowing others the blessing of helping us. And y'all, I'm as guilty as anybody. I am continually repenting of the sin of self-sufficiency. I need you, and we need each other. There's a sympathetic 
spirit that takes place when we humble ourselves and we put others' needs before our own. But you see, when we are sympathetic towards one another, we are showing the world what the gospel looks like. We're preaching the gospel to one another when we say, I am hurting, I am in need, and I need someone to help me. That is pointing to the gospel. As sinners, we are helpless, we are hopeless, we are in need, and yet Jesus shows us the sympathy by drawing near to us through his death and resurrection. You see, the gospel is to be permeated and displayed through us as we are sympathetic towards one another. So just as Jesus was sympathetic towards us, so now we go and do likewise for other, others. Number three, he says love one another. That word for love, verse eight, is a, it means a brotherly love. Okay, believers love one another like family. You see, even though in this room we do not share the same DNA, we love one another as brothers and sisters. You see, Christians love one another like family because we are family. We are united through the blood of Jesus. He is what holds us together. Christy and I, our biological family, the closest, is eight hours away. And as those who God has called here, we have planted roots here in this community. And y'all, this is sweet home Alabama for us. And I praise God for it. And may I say to you, for those of you in this room, you're my family. You are more my family than many who are back in Kentucky. You love my kids well. You love my wife well. We're together. We're family. And that's one of God's good gifts to us as believers is that the blood of Jesus helps us to love one another. We are in this together. And so Peter is saying here, you are to love with a brotherly love. There is a brotherly affection because we are family. Then he says, number four, be compassionate. The phrase means tenderhearted. It means we have all the feels for one another. We are, Romans 12, verse 15, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We mourn with those who mourn. We, we, when someone's hurting, we sit down and we, we cry with them. When, when someone has a baby or hits a home run or gets engaged, we celebrate. We rejoice with one another. There is just this love, this emotional capacity that God has placed within us in which we empathize, we understand and have compassion towards one another. And it's the same way that Jesus has shown compassion to us in the gospel. It's the way that he identifies with who we are and the sin that we are in, the pain that we feel, he identifies. He knows exactly how you feel. The temptation that you are facing right now, Jesus is fully aware and he himself was tempted in every way that you are and yet without sin. You see, you have a Savior who draws near. God is personal. He draws near. You see, one of the fallacies of the many fallacies within Islam is that Allah is distant. He is a God who is a deist. He is far away. But in Jesus, God of the Bible draws near. 
He cares for you and he has compassion for you. So out of the same compassion that God has for us, so too are we to have compassion upon one another. This is why you need a small group. You need people whom you can draw near with and you can share those feelings with. And some of you guys are like, yeah, right. (laughs) And the wives are like, come on, preacher, come on, bring it. Okay, there's just this sense in which God has made you for community and you need someone whom you can have compassion on and you need to have someone to have compassion on you. You see, there is something beautiful in the way that the Spirit forges relationships that we even cry together and laugh together and sometimes even in the same conversation. There is a tender-heartedness that is to mark believers. Fifthly, we see that we are to be humble. This is the chief attitude of, that, that should mark believers, that daily we, remind, we are reminded that we are the created, not the creator. We are completely dependent upon the Lord for life, for breath, for salvation. See, humility is rightly knowing who you are in light of who God is. You see, when you understand that God is sovereign even over every star in the sky and every speck of dust on your bookshelf, he is sovereign and Lord over the number of heartbeats that you have in your lifetime, and he knows what you're going to say before you say it. It's amazing that he, he raises up kings and he ordains the birth of baby bear cubs. He has the power and the authority to cast unbelievers into hell and to rescue and redeem any repentant sinner who turns to Jesus and usher them into his majestic kingdom. So what do you have that you did not receive? What do you possess that he has not graciously given to you? You see, faith family, when you rightly see God for who he is, it drives you. It drives you to humility. You see, pride often will look like two extremes. One extreme of pride is, I'm awesome. Okay, I walk around with swagger. I think I got it all together. Everything's about me. I'm awesome. Well, the opposite spectrum of pride is, I'm a nobody. I'm worthless, I have no value, nobody loves me or cares for me. That is pride also. Well, what is the answer to pride? The gospel. The gospel says, no, you're not awesome, Jesus is awesome. Look at what he's done for you through his death and resurrection. But the answer to pride over here is saying, no, you're not a nobody, you are identified with Jesus. You are who he says you are. You are not a nobody. You're an image bearer who is loved by Jesus. And if you are in him, you have value because you are made by him, you are loved by him, and you now belong to him. What he says about you is true. You're blameless. You're righteous. You're holy. You're sinless. You're a saint. Because of you? No. What he has done for you in the gospel. This is what defines you. And sometimes we will swing back and forth through these two extremes in one day. 
will say, man, I'm awesome or I'm a nobody, and we feel this. And so the answer is Jesus. We look to him and say, Jesus, you are the one who is awesome, and in you I find who I was made for. My identity is in Jesus Christ. So we are to look to Jesus who perfectly displayed humility by leaving the glory of heaven and coming and being born in a manger. A savior who is so humble that he not only took on flesh, but he touched the leper. He spent time with the poor and the outcast. He had compassion on those who were on the outside. He humbles himself to the point of death even death on a cross. You see, Jesus is the one we aim for. And as we pursue after him, we also see these godly attitudes, these characteristics transforming us and making us like him. So in the midst of persecution, number one, you display the attitude of Christ. Number two, you display the actions of Christ. Look at verse nine. Peter writes, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. Verse 10, for the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. As first century believers are suffering, Peter is teaching how to respond to the attacks of unbelievers. Verses 9 through 12, this is a radically different ethic than the rest of the world. Now, where did Peter get this idea of blessing your enemies? Well, he got it from Jesus. If we had time right now, we'd go look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 45, where Jesus is up on the Sermon on the Mount, and he is preaching, and he is saying, this is what the kingdom looks like. You you are to bless those who curse you. you. You bless and you do not curse. You pray for your enemies. You love your enemies. You, you show kindness to those who rise up against you. You see, revenge is a word that is no longer in the vocabulary of the believer. Instead of fighting back evil for evil, insult for insult, yo mama for yo mama, We instead speak blessing. Why? Verse 9, you were called for this. God called you. He saved you. So now you get to go be a blessing to others in the same way that you have been blessed in Christ. So when someone attacks your faith, Jesus is your response. And it's in a sense you look to him and you, you do not cuss them out. You do not gossip about them. You do not slander. But rather, Romans 12, 19, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Your desire to clench your fist is not your response to those who persecute you for the gospel. Instead of fighting back, you bless. You speak words of life. In fact, I would encourage you to go look at Romans 12 because it's amazing. Even he finishes up a section, Paul does, in which he says, when you bless, when you do good works for those who curse you, you are heaping hot coals upon their head. I love that. I'm like, okay, I like that. 
So I'm going to return cursing with blessing. And what, what happens when, when we bless? Well, the Lord then blesses us. You inherit, verse 9, a blessing. You see, the more you bless, the more you will be blessed. That's Peter's point. The more you bless others, the more the Lord's like, yes, I'm going to bless those who bless others. Well, Kenneth, how do I do that? What does this practically look like? Well, Peter tells us verses 10 through 12. And he does it so in these three verses by quoting Psalm 34. And what's interesting about Psalm 34 is that's a psalm written by King David as he is being persecuted by King Saul. So Peter is holding up David in the midst of his suffering and says, this is how you respond. That you, you are to show so blessing. You see, David twice had the opportunity to kill Saul. Twice he had the opportunity to take down his mortal enemy, the one who was trying to kill him. But both times he says, I will do no such thing. I will not touch the Lord's anointed. How can I do such a thing? Well, here we see David lay out for us from Psalm 34. Do you want to love life? Verse 10, watch your mouth. Do you want to see good days? Verse 11, watch your life. Let him seek peace and pursue it. That word pursue, verse 11, it's a hunting term. It means to pursue with intensity and determination, with persistence. Well, here in the text, Peter is pointing believers to the attitudes and the actions that we are to have for those who follow Christ. It's both our heart and it's with our life. We display the glory of Christ to those inside the church and to those outside the church. So what does this look like practically? Let me give you three ways real quickly. How do believers respond to persecution? Number one, prayer. You pray for those who persecute you, Matthew 5, 44. As Jesus is hanging on the, crack, on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As Stephen is having stones tear his flesh off in Acts chapter 7, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You pray for them. Number two, kindness. Jesus says in Matthew 5, but I tell you, love your enemies. He goes on to say in Luke 6, 28, bless those who curse you. If you want to try and reach people, don't try and win an argument. Try and win their heart. And the way that you win their heart is with kindness. You respond from cursing with blessing. So prayer kindness, and then number three, forgiveness. This is the hardest of all three. You are to forgive in the same way that God has forgiven you in Christ. Well, Kenneth, don't you know what they did to me? No, but the Lord does. Well, how in the world do I have the power to forgive someone who's hurt me and my family? It's the same way that Jesus has forgiven you and how you hurt him and robbed him of glory. You see, the gospel empowers you to forgive your enemies. And you forgive those who rise up against you because that is exactly what God has done for you in Jesus. And you are now empowered to forgive in the same way. Y'all, we live in dark times. We live in a culture that is straight up confused. 
So do we wring our hands in fear with anxiety? No. Do we raise our fist and scream at the rain? No. We speak words of blessing because our confidence is not found upon this earth. In the midst of a world that is falling apart, we display the attitude of Christ. We display the actions of Christ. And when we do, we find that that is how we are to now live.